So there is a person on the next slide uh, we're going to look at. I'm going to share a lot with the, about this person. Her name was Julian of Norwich. Uh, when I was from uh, the Midwest, I naturally would have pronounced this Julian of Norwich. But uh, back in uh, England, they forget that W, Julian of Norwich. And this is one of her quotes. I'm going to give you a couple things from her. Uh, let me tell you a little about her first. Uh, so she lived about 600 years ago. Uh, this is uh, Women's History Month, so we want to give a nod to that. We did a lot of cool things with Black History Month uh, last month, and last week we highlighted Esther, Queen Esther, who was a major heroine in the Jewish story, which is part of our story, and this is a Christian mystic. She was the first female author in England. Now, there may have been some pseudonymous uh, female authors in England, but this is the first one that signed her name to it 600 years ago. Uh, when she was born, um, she was just before the Black Plague struck. So when she was about six to eight years old, the Black Plague wiped out half of the population in Europe. Right. So she was well accustomed to understanding what it was like to live in that kind of environment. When she was a teenager, around 16 years old, uh, she fought a life-threatening illness of some sort. She and everybody around her thought she was going to be done. And she was laying on her deathbed. Um, I don't know if she was in a coma or what, but she had a series of visions from God that radically reshaped her, 17 of them uh, to be precise. And when she came out of uh, whatever she was in, she was well, and she wrote down in what are called her shorter writings uh, to just get them down on paper to let uh, people know what she experienced, and then later on, she extrapolated on that and did more. But I want you to understand, at that time in history, uh, even though uh, English, uh, the English people were creating their own version of Catholicism called Anglicanism, it was basically the same thing uh, with some distinctives, um, the reigning theology of the day is, you better do what God says or else. You better fall in line or else. That way of thinking about God has always been with us. You can find it in the Bible uh, because that's the way the world thinks. So we naturally always gravitate toward ideas about God as reflecting the culture and the reality of our human experience. So we look at the world powers and we see people on top and we naturally think to ourselves, well, that must be what God likes. But within the biblical text, from cover to cover, you also have this other theme running through that says something different about the character and nature of God. It's that different character and nature of God that Julian was introduced to in her visions. Because at the end of the day, what she came to believe was that God's primary characteristic is love. That she was already in love, already surrounded by God, already loved by God, that there was nothing that could change that for her. Truly, deeply loved. This experience that she had as a teenager, lying on her deathbed, radically changed her. She changed uh, her desire for her future after that experience, and she became an anchoress. I didn't really know what an anchoress was, so I had to look it up. An anchoress was a person who devoted their life to prayer, kind of in a monastic sort of a way, but with an interesting twist. So she went through a ceremony uh, within the Anglican church 
And most of the liturgy of that ceremony was a funeral ceremony. <laughs> they were essentially saying to her and the public, this life that you have known is over. You're dead as far as that life was concerned. And now you are moving into this new expression of life. So she had a room built for her uh, and others, um, but just for her, a room of isolation into the cathedral walls itself. And once she was put behind that door, this is all voluntary, they sealed up the opening. She is now bricked in. This literally is where she's going to spend the rest of her life, devoted to prayer, meditation, all of that. She would be consulted uh, by kings, by priests, by common people in the village, and highly respected for what she thought. At the bottom of her thinking, and in the middle and the top of her thinking, everything was about the love of God and how it changed her. So when it comes to prayer, she had this to say, prayer is the deliberate and persevering action of the soul. It is true and enduring and full of grace. Prayer fastens the soul to God and makes it one with God's will. So when we pray, when we meditate, this is what we're after. We're trying to do our best to bring our attention to this greater other we call God uh, that sometimes gets lost in the busyness of our time together. And we do it together because we remind each other we're not alone in this journey. And we're all in it together, trying to understand it together. And sometimes, frankly, and this may be you today, maybe you're a draggy today. Maybe you don't even want to be here, <laughs> but you kind of got stuck doing it. And I don't know, you know, at what price. But anyway, uh, that sort of makes the next slide make sense. Because she goes on to say, pray, even if you feel nothing, see nothing. For when you are dry, empty, sick, or weak, at such a time is your prayer most pleasing to God, even though you may find little joy in it. This is true of all believing prayer. Not only is it pleasing to God, in fact, the reason it's pleasing to God is not because God is some kind of narcissist that wants to hear from you all the time, but it's pleasing to God because God understands that when we are uh, sharing our thoughts, when we're getting them out of us and releasing them into the company of God, that something happens in a healthy way for us. It's good for us to pray for us. And so God takes delight in that. Julian was so convinced of the effusive, everlasting, foundational presence of God that in one of her moments of this vision, uh, she could see everything at once. It was, we would call that a unitive experience like some others have had throughout history in their mysticism. And the final thing that she said, however, which was so powerful is, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. We need to lean on her for faith today because as we're moving from pandemic to endemic, as uh, the economy is trying to figure out what the heck it's doing, as gas prices soar because of the economy and because of Russia and Ukraine, oh yeah, and Russia and Ukraine, and what that is doing to put people on edge, 
we are at a new elevated level of anxiety in our country. I shared in an email to crosswalkers in my secret pastor uh, email list, <laughs> that the APA uh, identified uh, 86% of people in the United States uh, feel like they are at a heightened level of anxiety because everything that we've been through and now are going to go into. And that's really true. So we need to spend some time to be still, to be quiet. If you don't believe in God, you don't not sure anything about that, then just enjoy the stillness and take advantage of this time to breathe and focus on centering yourself. Uh, and because that's half the battle. I'm going to use God language uh, with this. Uh, but I invite you just to be fully present here and now, and let me guide you a minute. So if you would, uh, sit comfortably, close your eyes, and just breathe deeply. These are cleansing breaths. You take them deep, you hold them for a couple seconds, and then you release. This is basic meditation stuff. It's very good for your brain, very good for your body. Just to be still and focus on your breath. Jesus did this stuff. Every mystic all the time has benefited from this. And as you continue to cycle your breathing, just check in with your own body. Where are you tense? Your shoulders, your stomach, your back, your facial muscles. They're offering a mirror to you to say to you, you're stressed. So as you exhale, try to relax those muscles. Try to let yourself feel safe in this space together, because you are. Be fully present. God, help us be fully present. Spirit of God, I ask that you help us also to be aware of the hamster wheel happening in our mind. Just thinking a thousand different thoughts. Just help us see that we're doing this. And as we're able, God, help us release each of these thoughts in turn into your care. Letting them command our attention and our mind is not helping us. And so we release our to-do lists, our concerns, even our prayer concerns for the people that we love so much. Matters great and small. We choose to acknowledge them and release them into the care of God. God, we are emotional creatures. And so help us by your spirit to be honest about what emotions we're juggling this morning. Could be joy, could be elation, could be hope, could be gratitude, could be despair, anxiety, sadness, anger, grief. God, help us at least name what they are that we're carrying. Because in naming them, we can start to manage them, help, 
help them get resolved, just living with them. But we can't until we do. Just help us see what we're carrying. Now, congregations, you continue to breathe. I invite you to imagine a distant future, hopefully a distant future, where you are fully one with God. You've drawn your last breath on this plane of life, and you've begun to breathe in this new space. Some call it heaven, some eternity, the full presence of God. And in that space, all of the unresolved stuff of your life here and now is gone. No more pain, no more struggle, no more anxiety about a thing. It's been handled. The hurts that you've endured, the ways you've hurt yourself, somehow they've been healed. the hatred that we carry around in our hearts toward other people and ourselves somehow has melted away. We're at total peace. The only thing we feel at that moment is love, fully, completely. We find ourselves really more alive than we could ever have imagined because every part of us that draws us away from God and away from love, it's no longer there. We are free, totally free in the presence of love. How does it feel to be in such a space? Julian of Norwich had such an experience where she was fully immersed in love. Jesus had a similar experience where he was fully immersed by the presence of God. And it changed their lives. And they began to realize that they didn't have to wait until that distant tomorrow to live in that state of love now. You are invited to more and more in your life to live presently as we all will someday. Rooted, motivated, surrounded by love. And so, God, we ask that your presence fill this place, that we be more open to love, recognizing that you are defined in the Bible as love itself, as the source of love, as the face of love, as the genitor of love. May we be immersed in your presence here today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song, inviting 
ourselves and God into the same room. <clears throat> Dwell in the midst of us. Come and dwell in this place. Dwell in the midst of us. Come and have your way. Dwell in the midst of us. Wipe all the tears from our faces. Our faces. Well, in the midst of us, you can have your Sustain us. 
Good stuff. Thank you. So we do have communion coming up for you uh, in just a little bit. And I was reminded to remind you today that uh, this is open communion. So you don't have to be a member of the church. Uh, you don't have to sign off on any particular dogma or doctrine. Um, for some of you, actually tasting communion in a different frame might actually be a great step forward in your relationship with God. And we're totally cool with that. There's a, a, a passage in Psalms that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it could be that the taste of these elements, the physical reality of these things that I'll walk you through, could be one of those eye-opening moments for you um, that is helpful in your journey. So I hope so. So as we truck along today, um, we're going to be continuing this uh, series. Today we're talking about a little bit about uh, Thomas or uh, Marcus Borg's born-again idea, and you'll understand why as we truck through it. But this week, you know, as I was looking at uh, different elements of uh, what is ahead for us, um, we have this little thing called the lectionary. And the lectionary uh, is a, a group of scriptures that's been laid out centuries ago uh, to kind of walk us through the Christian year. And this passage opened up for today that I'm supposed to talk about. And frankly, I didn't want to talk about it all week long. I just died. I had no interest in talking about this. This is not a feel-good type of passage at all. It's not easy to work with. There's no button on this. There's no Hallmark movie made about this. There's no greeting card that references this. You know, super Christians, you know, super secret super Christians, they know that every time you sign a card, you leave a Bible verse on there. Nobody's leaving this Bible verse on any card uh, because it's just not that fun. And yet there's some stuff here that I think uh, will actually be informative for us. So this is where we're at. Uh, Jesus is hanging out in Jerusalem. Uh, doing some teaching and doing what he did. And at that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you, want to, if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Now, a couple words of note. First of all, Herod Antipas was the governor of the region to the north called Galilee. That's where Jesus was basically lived his whole life. And uh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. But he's hanging out in Jerusalem uh, right now. And he does not like Jesus because Jesus was the guy that came after John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, sort of, uh, was a guy who called out Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife, which apparently was not a good idea. So called him out, and he knew that Jesus had similar sentiments, uh, that Herod Antipas's morality was wanting. And so Herod Antipas wanted to get rid of Jesus. The interesting thing is, is who is delivering this message? <laughs> because it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees represent ancient Judaism. And they're in Jerusalem, which means they probably weren't Pharisees. It was probably Sadducees. Now, they might not mean a whole lot to you, but uh, in the southern part of ancient Israel, um, the primary people who were teaching the law were Sadducees. They were also running the Jewish show for the most part. Pharisees were largely to the north, so maybe there were some there, but by this time in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, most of the teachers of the law were not fans of Jesus because Jesus was contradicting their teaching. He was correcting it. For whatever reason, people got into a hyper-legalism in Jesus' day, and so they were super focused on making sure you kept every letter of the over 600 laws that you were supposed to keep to keep God happy. And Jesus basically said to them, you've gotten this thing all backwards. 
the law wasn't created to be served. The law was there to help us. And so Jesus was okay uh, even doing some quote-unquote work on the Sabbath, you know, one of the whoppers that made the top 10 list of God's important laws. <laughs> and he felt okay about doing that. He felt okay about mixing it up with people that he wasn't supposed to because they would make him unclean. He felt okay about touching people that he wasn't supposed to touch lepers because it would make him unclean. He was okay with offering forgiveness to people because he understood this was the heart of God. So it's odd that the Pharisees are the ones now that are telling uh, Jesus, you better run for your life. Strange who God would work through, isn't it? So anyway, Jesus hears this and he replied, go tell that fox, Herod Antipas. Is that a nice thing to say about a person? No, you're reading it correctly. It's a little bit of a slam. Go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way, for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. And then he goes on and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. By the way, it's a bad job if you become a prophet of God. It generally means you're going to die uh, at the hands of the people that you're trying to warn uh, that things are going to go amok. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so Jesus continues, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. This, by the way, is one of the references in the Bible that has God pictures in the feminine as a mother trying to guard her chicks. Uh, Julian of Norwich really goes full on, full throttle uh, with this idea, really refers to Jesus as mother <laughs> in many ways, in so many ways. Uh, and that's an expression of the love of God. So we're seeing this Jesus who knows that in Jerusalem, he's going to find his demise, that there are people in Jerusalem that literally want to kill him now and will kill him. He's confident that he's going to die. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. He's going to go back there, but he knows he's going to die. And yet his attitude toward Jerusalem is as a mother hen. It's loving. Isn't that something? He goes on and says, and now look, your house is abandoned and you'll never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a reference to um, Palm Sunday, which is just a few weeks away. So on the next slide, um, we're reminded a little bit, which I will get us to, there we go, uh, of another saying that comes from Julian of Norwich. She says, our Savior is our true mother in whom we are endlessly born and out of whom we shall never come. Sit on that for a while. Our Savior is our true mother in whom we are endlessly born. <laughs> and out of whom we shall never come. We could go home now, really. I mean, that's, that's pretty good stuff. <laughs> Not bad for a 16-year-old woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is an example of a person who has had a uh, Julian, uh, who's had a, uh, a unitive experience of God where there is no separation uh, between us and God. Uh, we use the term around here uh, of late in the last several months and years, panentheism, that we are in God and God is in us. So she has this experience. She's had this experience where she's essentially saying in common terms, 
uh, that we are continually growing. That's the born again kind of a thing, going deeper into new insights in this uh, womb, and we never come out of the womb because we can't. <laughs> you're in God now. You're never going to leave that space. That's sort of what she's getting at with that. Thanks for asking the question, Jaja. And so then we get to this next thing, which she says, how? My, how busy we become when we lose sight of how God loves us. How busy we become when we lose sight of how God loves us. And I want to talk about this uh, for a few moments. Because some of you uh, were raised in a, in a Christian tradition because, again, this is the dominant view that humanity has had forever. And this view is expressed in the Bible, but so is the alternative view that Jesus certainly was more aligned with. And the dominant view is you better be a good person of faith. You better believe in God. You better say the right confessions. You better show up at church. You better be a good moral person or else. Not necessarily or else the consequences are going to come bite you, because we all know that's true. But I mean, or else, you know, in a big kind of God way. Like, you're going to be in trouble with the big guy. So you better pay attention, and you better get baptized, and you better say confession, and you better take communion, all these different things. And you better read your Bible. And some of us were raised in this, even if it wasn't explicit uh, in our instruction as kids. For some of us, it was. But even if it wasn't, this is the prevailing view. This is, this is the air that we breathe in our culture. Everything is power-dominated in our culture. Everything is you better do it or else. We have this idea that fear somehow is going to win the day. And fear is very powerful. It's an incredible motivator. Ask any political strategist. That's what's coming <laughs> every election cycle, not Hey, everybody, <laughs> let's hold hands and love each other into the future. No, it's you got to vote because if you don't vote for me, it's the end of the world, right? I mean, every election cycle, I don't care if it's for, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, who knows? You're going to get a $3 fine if you don't recycle. You better vote for this or it's the end of the world. I mean, every election cycle, fear, fear, fear. This is the way the world operates. And it's the way most of us have been taught to think about God. But it wasn't Jesus' way. Everything about Jesus was love. Everything. Whatever happened in that moment after his baptism, when he had some kind of encounter with God that was recognizable, that marked the beginning of his public ministry, it so shaped him that he chose to dedicate the rest of his life just being a conduit for what God was wanting to do through him in the world. And what did that mean? It meant the kinds of things that we know him to be good for, his teaching, his healing, his standing up for the underdog, bridging the gap to people who were told they're not lovable, even forgiving sins, which was a big no-no back in his day. So I just want to set the record straight and maybe give you a little more time in your day. I want to tell you, as, a, as an official clergy person, who's been doing this for nearly 30 years, you are forgiven. Your sins absolved. Not by my power, but by the power of which I and through I speak. I'm telling you, as an agent of God, <laughs> who's ticked all the boxes, you are so loved by God that you can let go of that fear that God is going to strike you dead if you don't show up to church, 
if you don't do X and Y and whatever else. Because here's what I know to be true, and this is what Jesus knew to be true, that if our faith itself is motivated out of a place of fear, we're done from the beginning. It misses the point. No, it will not generate uh, a relationship of love between us and God. And because the relationship between us and God is motivated out of fear, then that's also how we're going to treat and motivate other people. And that is not what changes the world. That simply lets the world continue on its course. The voice of Jesus is, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved. So, if you want to get out of here, go for it. You're set. If that's what you come to church for, is to make sure you're loved by God, I'm telling you, you're good. <laughs> Have a nice day. We'll see you. We're going to hang out here if anybody wants to hang out, and I want to tell you a couple more things. But if that's what you came for, is to get God off your back today, I just want to tell you, it's never on your back. It's not the character and nature of God. It's just not how God operates. It doesn't mean that you don't have consequences for your choices and all that stuff. We all know that's true. But in terms of how God views you, how God feels about you, it's done. God loves you. Never going to change. Get over the other fear stuff. Let it go. Pipe it down because that's not who God is. It can be very freeing. There's an opposite way of getting at it, which is also interesting. I had lunch with a, <laughs> with a friend a few months ago, and he was telling me his story. And he said, yeah, I was in college, and I was really into my faith. And, um, but then I was in college, we even went to a Christian college, and he's talking about it. And he said he started to have these questions, these kind of deep, challenging theological questions that weren't getting good answers, and his professors weren't particularly happy for asking such questions because it was challenging, yeah, kind of the held dogma and doctrine, you know, of the college and of uh, the general theological tradition. And it just sort of wore him down. And he was just kind of sick of it, and he could not make sense of the world or God based on that model, that paradigm anymore. And so he told me after quite some time of struggle, uh, he woke up one morning and just decided there is no God. There is no God. And he meant it. I don't believe there's a God. And I think he was looking for some shock value on my face. And then he went forward a little bit, and he said, and you know what I felt after I said, there is no God? I said, what? He said, I felt like a thousand pounds were lifted off my shoulders. I felt more free than ever. And you know what I did in response to that? I laughed out loud. <laughs> the last thing, not at him, with him. It's the last thing he expected. Why am I laughing with him at this idea that there is no God? It's because that God that he was saying no to doesn't exist. To get rid of that God is to cut the tie, is to release the pressure of the you better or else mentality. It changes our dynamic and our relationship with God and the created order itself. I knew of the freedom that he was talking about because I've lived through it myself. He had to live for a season. Uh, of his life uh, in this sort of fuzzy agnostic space after he recognized that the God that he had killed off <laughs> was no longer legit because it was never legit 
And now he's trying to form his way back into thinking, and he's finding these sources, some of which we peddle around here, that offer a different way of thinking that make a lot of sense about the person of Jesus and what happened in his life and what he's trying to say and do in the world about the character and nature of God being loving. Because when you discover that the love of God is really, 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 really true, and you can't do anything to screw that up, it makes you do nutty things like Julian of Norwich <laughs> and hold yourself up in the side of a cathedral for the rest of your life so you can devote your full attention to that God. It's amazing what happens when the love of God transforms us. The fear of God is somewhat transformative. It can get you in line, but it will not change your heart, and it will not change your eyes about how you enter the world. But the love of God, when you are fully aware of just how much you're loved by God, and I mean really down to your core, where you know that this is true, that changes your life. Because the way our world operates says you better earn it. You're only loved if you're worthy of it. And so we do all kinds of things to prove our worth to God and the rest of the world. We work a little harder. We think a little more. We even serve more. We, get, we even might even do some really churchy type things, all to say to God, I'm worthy, I'm worthy, I'm worthy of your love. When God is saying, you're just plain worthy. Change this. Get rid of that idea of God because it's a false God. It's not real at all. What happens when we choose the love of God? Julian of Norwich um, says this, our life is all grounded and rooted in love. And without love, we may not even live. Have you ever lived a period of your life where you really felt the absence of love? I know you have. If you're a human being, unless you're that good at denial, <laughs> you have probably lived through seasons of such darkness, and they feel like living death. All right? You feel the absence of love, the coldness of the absence of love. On the other hand, when love abounds, isn't that when we feel the most alive in various ways? Of course. And so um, we're going to take communion here in a second, and we're going to need uh, to, to prep ourselves for this, because one of the questions I'm asking is, why in the world would Jesus, in this passage that I didn't want to talk about today, why did he keep at it? He just found out he's going to be killed. He, somebody wants him dead, and he already knows people want him dead. And there's got to be a part of him that just wants to, you know, give him a friendly hand signal and blow town and say, well, forget you, man. That's, that's your problem. I don't need, I don't need any of this nonsense and just protect himself. And, you know, is that what happens? Is, is, is hedonism what happens when we're really immersed in love? When, when, we, when we know that we're loved and we no longer have to do anything to earn God's favor, is the re end result that we don't care anymore? Is that what happens to us? Is that the risk we take? If we teach our children to really, really believe that they're deeply loved by God, is that the risk that they'll just become more self-centered which seems to be what human nature does, is that where that leads? And the answer is, no, it's not. Because when we are truly rooted and grounded in this kind of love, it changes our view of everybody. 
Now for a season in our immaturity, and frankly, some of us could be stuck in immaturity for most of our lives, but sometimes we're stuck in that immaturity and we never get beyond the fact like, woohoo, God loves me. I'm all good. Sucka, see you later. You know, <laughs> and on we go. That's kind of what we, how we think about things, right? But in our maturity, if we're really open to a growing, deepening relationship with the love of God, it really does start to change us from the inside out. And we start to really see and understand our own value. And we understand that it's not about our achievement or our helpfulness or our uniqueness or our perfectionism or our depths of study or our commitment to community or our standing up for the underdog or our peacemaking, that, that all of that stuff, if done for the wrong reasons, actually works against us. But if those things are motivated out of a place of love, for love, by love, it starts to have a regenerative effect. And we find ourselves not ever running out of that source, which is causing us to do it in the first place. Mature faith, growing in maturity in love, finding ourselves swimming deeper and deeper, makes us more loving people, makes us more willing to give of ourselves because that is the nature of love. I can't look at you as somebody who is unworthy of the love of God, because I am absolutely convinced that George here is deeply and profoundly loved by God, and George can't do anything, even if he misses picking up my trash during the week, which is one of the wonderful things George does here. Even if he misses my trash can, God still loves you, George. <laughs> and that's true. I know it's true for you. I know it's true for Darlene. I know it's true for Sharon and Lisa, and I know it's true for all of you. And when I begin to see you as people who are equally loved by God, I can't help but want to treat you well and to sow more love into you. That's what she's getting at. So the deal still stands because we're going to head toward communion here. The deal still stands that if you came here just to hear one more time that you're deeply loved by God and that your sins are absolved, you're done. You can get away cracker free. <laughs> But if you want to see and taste and experience this, then, then let's go through a little journey together. And, and remembering Jesus, because that's what Jesus said when he had the Last Supper. When you take this and you break bread and you take the cup, I just want you to remember me. So what are we remembering? Remembering who he was, remembering what his life was about, what animated him, what he was trying to tell us. There were parts of his death that later on were looked at in one frame as, you know, sort of a sacrifice for sin stuff. But for the most part, for the first 900 years of the Christian movement, when they came together and did communion, it was just to remember Jesus, that it might have a continual impact on them. And so I have a little litany for you, a little liturgical moment here. And you have an easy phrase. I'm going to read stuff, the longer stuff, the only thing you got to say back to me is we are loved by God. Do you think you can handle that? What are you going to say? Very good. I might not even make it that hard. I think it's just we are loved. It is. It's just we are loved. So here we go. We live in a transactional world where it feels like we only get when we give. This leaves us wondering if we have any inherent value if we don't do anything or offer anything. This leads some to focus on performance, which gets response which tells them they are alive, and if the response of positive is positive, that they are valued. Are we loved when we perform well? We are loved. Transactional thinking 
leads others in a different direction, especially if the response isn't positive. It can lead to despair, leaving us wonder, wondering if we have any inherent value whatsoever unworthy of love. Are we loved even if we underperform? Yeah, but seriously, what if we do worse than underperform? What if we really suck, honestly? I'll just ask that question again. Yeah, but seriously, what if we do worse than underperform? What if we really suck? Well done. Wait a minute. What if we are worse than really sucky? What if we are pretty terrible human beings causing ourselves and others great harm? Yeah, we are loved. We are loved. If we are loved no matter what, why bother with good works? Why should we aim higher than sucky? Why not give in to hedonism and not care about self-destruction or hurting others? What is our motivation for doing good deeds and living good lives? Yeah. Love calls us in. Love heals us up. Love motivates us toward our best self, our true self that God has given us. And so with this cracker, if you want to grab a cracker, which represents, reminds us of the physical body of Jesus and how far he went to carry his message forward. We take the bread, a symbol of a body broken in service, service born of love. We take the bread, embracing love, grateful for love, overcome by love. We take the bread, transformed by love, committed to serve from love as love. We are loved. Take and eat. Julian said, every act of kindness and compassion done by any man for his fellow Christian is done with Christ working within him. Christ working within him. Christ means anointed. Do you know, those of you who have clued in to this loving God and the reality of God in our midst, that you are anointed? You have Christ within? The same power, the same blood coursing through your veins as Jesus. You have it with you. And so, as we take this cup, we take the cup, a symbol of blood, that which allows us to live, poured out for love, as love. We take the cup, acknowledging the life and love that course through Jesus' body, freely given. We take the cup, fully aware of life and love coursing through our veins, and we pledge our lives to love others as well. And what do you say? We are loved. Take and drink. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one with Christ. We are one with God. Here's one other guy that we need to mention uh, today, uh, and that is St. Patrick, because we have to, because it's St. Patrick's Day this week, and you'll be eating corned beef and cabbage, and you'll be angry with me if I didn't mention St. Patrick. St. Patrick is another guy who predated uh, Julian by a thousand years. 
And this is a guy who was kidnapped from his home country uh, and taken to Ireland uh, to basically be a slave or a servant of some sort where he worked hard uh, for, I think, eight years and then was uh, kicked back or he escaped or something uh, back to his homeland. He got educated and he wanted to become a priest and a missionary. And once he uh, got all of his credentials and went through whatever he had to go through, do you know where he wanted to serve? Ireland. Not just because he hated snakes and thought he could do some extermination. <laughs> he wanted to clue them in about the love of God. The, can you imagine? Can you imagine that he didn't want to go back with a sword and clean house? He went back because the love of God transformed him. He went back to tell them the good news about this love of God that is real, that we build our lives on. It's that other thing that's happening in our lives beyond flesh and blood that ties everything together, and it makes all the difference in life. And so he goes back, and he devoted himself to that. And so in honor of him and because his prayer is really good, I want us to end our day, have you stand, and we're going to end by praying uh, the prayer of St. Patrick's Breastplate. And legend has it, it's actually longer than this. He has some other things he says that's at least this long that he says before this. But this is how he would choose to start his day. As he would enter the day, imagine orienting your brain and your mindset with this as you went forward. So let's end our service together with this. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. Now, real quick, do we have the kids here? Are they with us? Yep. They're thinking about it. <laughs> All right. Can you sit for one second? Because the kids have something they want to do uh, for us real quick. Here's what I want to do. Are there any feedback, any questions that you have over what I talked about? I saw Zaza, you had a hand up a bit ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the question is, is why use an exclusivistic language? Why limit it to Christians? Yeah. Well, there are two things going on here. One is other writings from Julian uh, let us know that she was more inclusive than that. Uh, however, um, it is human nature again. In fact, <clears throat> we see this uh, in antiquity, uh, in Jewish uh, circles, uh, well, that informed Jesus. And we saw it after Jesus with the formation of the early church, uh, that we tend to limit love to our own. And we have to be reminded that the love of God is bigger than that. Now, that reality shows up, again, from cover to cover in the Bible. One of those issues, it'll just tie two of those together, because Jesus tied them together, had to do with, does God love only the Jews? And so there was this, uh, there was this 
first sermon that Jesus has after his 40-day camping trip, after he had this experience with God, and he goes back to his home uh, church in Nazareth. He's given the, the teaching. Everybody's super excited uh, that he's there. Uh, I mean, they're just waiting on pins and needles. I know he's going to be a big deal. He's the new Steph Curry of itinerant preaching, you know, all this stuff. And so he begins talking, and he pulls out the scroll, and it talks about kind of the things that he was going to do. And it has to do with freeing the captives, giving sight to the blind, etc. And then he goes on to say, but I tell you, there were a lot of people that were blind and, and uh, imprisoned in Elijah's time, and he, he chose to go this direction, and Elisha as well. And he made a reference to a time in a dark chapter of Israel's history where the greatest prophets of Israel were finding home and, and community with non-Jewish people and serving them, even in one, in one case, bringing a child back from death. The people in, in that small town immediately knew what Jesus was saying. And their reaction to Jesus saying to them, God is not exclusivistic, but includes everybody, their immediate reaction to Jesus was, we're going to kill this guy. And they literally drove him to the edge of town and wanted to throw him off a cliff. What that tells us is two things. One, Jesus was certainly dialed in to inclusivity, and his followers knew that and stretched in ways that even Jesus couldn't. And the second thing it tells us is, we we see the world as things are, as they are. But what that really means is we see the world as we are, not the way God sees the world. Does that make sense? So we struggle with this idea of God loves me, but I don't know about you, or God loves our tribe, but I don't know about that tribe, or we think God is a doormat or something if he does that kind of thing. So that's, and unfortunately, her language does this in that particular quote, but the general reality that transformed her life and that has transformed so many others, and why we're still here today, captured by love, is that that love is incredibly inclusive. Okay.